0: In this final installment of a four-part series through the chapter 139 of Psalm, we deal with something unexpected. So we have looked in the past three weeks at Psalm chapter 139, and we've studied what David has told us about God, and it's really been this it's been this high view of who God is. We've been looking at his characteristics and his attributes. We've learned about God's omniscience and his omnipotence. And we've learned that God is not only all-present and all-powerful, but that God is, um, that is refreshingly deep. And the more that we know about God, the, the closer it draws us to him because a right view of God won't lead us to retract from God, but rather it'll lead us to want to be nearer to him. And we've been looking at all that David has said about God, but now we have this sudden shift. And it's a radical, deep shift. It's a, it's a surprising change in the teaching that, that David has been providing. And again, David's singing this psalm, and from the psalm we've been learning about who God is, but now we have this radical change where David has gone from looking at who God is and talking about who God is to now calling for the execution of wicked people. And it's so challenging to us because of how rapid the shift is, but it really brings opportunity for us to reach two conclusions that'll answer two very pressing questions. And there's two questions that I think are are so, one is, is so natural component to this particular chapter, the other is very commonplace and is asked very frequently. So here are the two questions that we're going to eventually get to, and I need to to share these questions with you because they're going to drive the two points of the message or be responses to the two points of the message today. But I need to tell you what the questions are so that you understand the urgency by which we're going to teach through this passage, all right? So I'm going to share the questions and we just need to jump into the teaching of God's Word and then the preaching of God's Word because these are mega Questions that require uh, that require an answer demand an answer, and some of you need to hear the the question and the response. So, here are the two questions. The first question that we're going to eventually get to in the first part of this message is: How can we pray for God to annihilate the wicked from the face of the earth? How can we pray as david 's going to pray that God would execute all the wicked on the face of the earth at the same time reconciling that with jesus 's command that we would love our enemies? like those seem to be controversial or contradicting statements. Jesus says, "Love your enemies david 's praying david 's praying that God would just kill all of his enemies." Uh, all the wicked. So how do we reconcile that? Where do we come to terms? Does that mean that David's wrong or that Jesus is wrong or that there's a contradiction that cannot be resolved within scriptures? We're going to deal with that. The second question is, is if God is all powerful, if he's sovereign and above and beyond all, why does God not just deal with evil in the world? Like what's he waiting for? If he is sovereign, and there are bad things happening in this world, if there's wicked people, why doesn't he just act on it and take care of it? So these are big questions that we're going to deal with today in the text. But we've got to jump into the teaching, instructing the mind so that we can get into the preaching, the inspiring of the heart. So first, we need to do some teaching. We've been talking about the attributes of God. And unless we have the framework of understanding who God is, we cannot come to a conclusion of why God does what he does. So we need to understand who God is. And so we've been talking about the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. The communicable attributes of God haven't been the substance of our teaching through this series because they're not the the priority of the psalm, but the communicable attributes of God are the attributes and characteristics of God that we can receive and we can reflect. All right? Theological terms, but the attributes of God that we can receive and we can reflect. So this is like God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's patience. like we can receive God's love and then we can reflect God's love. We can receive God's mercy and then we can reflect God's mercy to other people. The incommunicable attributes, these are the attributes and characteristics of God that we've been studying in this passage. These are the attributes of God that we cannot receive and we cannot reflect. Now we can experience them We can learn about them, we can know about them, but we can't receive them. He can't communicate them and put them in our lives. And here's why, looking at the list. One is that God is sovereign. These are a list of communicable attributes. God's sovereignty means that God is the supreme being, that everything that exists is under God's rule and his authority. So God is sovereign. He is above and beyond. We cannot be the supreme being. You think you are, but you ain't right? You cannot be sovereign. Only God is sovereign. Uh, Another is God's omnipotence, meaning that God is all-powerful, the most powerful being in all existence and able to accomplish his will. He's omniscient, which means that he's all-knowing. God knows everything of the past, the present, and the future. He knows everything that actually is and everything that is possible to be. God's omnipresent, which means that God's, he's always present in all places at all times. God is transcendent, which means that God, because he's the creator, he transcends all creation and he is beyond all of created order. As such, he's completely unknowable except where he chooses and how he chooses to reveal himself to us. That's why it's important that we have the objective truth of God's word. This is God revealing himself to us. Because He's uncreated and we live within created order as created beings. The only thing we can know about God is what God chooses to reveal to us. God's eminence works with his transcendence. Because God is transcendent, we can't know him unless he knows about us. But because God is eminent, it means that he is invested and cares about our daily lives and he is involved with us individually. God's immutability means that God is complete and perfect He doesn't need to grow. He doesn't need to mature. He doesn't need to learn. God is complete and He's perfect. God's infinite means that He's unlimited. There is no stopping point in God, but He is infinite. From uh, from every point in the past to every point in the future, God is there fully. And God is eternal, which means that God is not confined to three-dimensional space or time. God never had a beginning. And he will never have an end because he is eternal. These are God's incommunicable attributes. Now we have to understand God's incommunicable attributes as a framework of who he is in order to give us a proper understanding of why he does why he does. So here we are. We understand who God is. Now we look at, at Psalm 139 to seek an understanding of why David makes this sudden, rapid, unexpected shift. And the reason that he moves from talking about God's omniscience and his omnipresence and God's imminence, his intricate involvement with the creation of human body and human person, that's Psalm 139, 13 through 18, now to praying. Now to praying and asking God, God, would you slay, would you annihilate the wicked? The reason that he makes this shift, the reason that he makes this shift is because he goes from looking with reverence at who God is to seeing the realism of what's going on around him. And in comparison to who God is and how God is, the world around us is corrupt and it's broken and it's full of wickedness. And what other response could you have to seeing the stark difference between God's perfection and world's? Depravity than saying, God, can you just wipe it all out? Specifically, he prays for the wicked execution. He prays for the wicked to be executed. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. He prays to the Lord. He's been talking about God. Now he brings it into a prayer Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, before we ask that question, how can we interpret and receive this word from the word of God as true? Before we ask how can we receive that and reconcile it to Jesus' instructions, to love our enemies, we need to look at at who the wicked are and why he calls for their annihilation. First, in verse 19, he calls them wicked. He identifies who he's talking about. The wicked are not just people who have done something wicked, but the wicked are those who are presently and actively wicked. They're presently and actively acting in wickedness. He tells us not only are they wicked, but he tells us that they're bloodthirsty people. In the second part of verse 19, he says, and, and would the, the men of blood depart from me? Now, some of your translations, I'm preaching and teaching from the English Standard Version, some of your translations may say bloodthirsty. Bloodthirsty is probably a, a fuller translation of the, of the Hebrew to English. Blood is not wrong, but bloodthirsty kind of speaks of the thought here. What he's saying is men who are wicked or individuals who are wicked, who also are thirsty for the spread and spill of blood, but not just any blood, the blood of the innocent, Specifically, these are individuals that want to spill the blood of innocent people. He goes on and he says, another reason that these wicked need to be executed, another characteristic of them is that they have malicious intent. In other words, we read in verse 20, they speak against the Lord with malicious intent. The reason they speak against the Lord is to do harm and because they have evil devices. So they're using their words in an evil and wicked way against God. Furthermore, they use God's name in vain. Verse 20, the second part, your enemies take your name in vain. They're not just talking against God, and they're not just spilling innocent blood, but they're evoking the name of God in an effort to show God up. So they're calling God, they're using God's name with no intention in God responding in an effort to make God look false. So they're in a situation They're like, oh my God, would you do something? And the intention of them using language like that is knowing that God's not going to do anything or at least not having a concern that God is going to act, therefore providing an implication to anyone who's listening that maybe there's not a real God after all. that's the problem with using God's name in vain. It's like you're calling God's name in a hollow way for people to conclude that if God doesn't work, either God doesn't care or God isn't real. And therefore, you're using God's name in an empty way that brings empty results to God, putting God on the spot. People are doing this, and these are the ones that he calls for their execution. Not only that, but they say, he says in verse 21, that they hate the Lord. The wicked personally hate God. They personally hate God. And they rise up against God. The second part of verse 21 tells us uh, that I hate them with complete hatred and I count them as enemies. These are people who, uh, in verse 21, who are rising up against the Lord and they hate the Lord. Therefore, we count them as enemies and we hate them as well. Now, this brings us to the place and this is the question that we have to ask. How do we reconcile, how do we reconcile what David is writing here in the psalm with what Jesus says in the gospels to love your enemy? Because if it's in the scripture, all right, note this, if it's in God's word, then we should be able to practice this. We should be able to pray for God to execute and to annihilate the wicked, So how do we reconcile this particular prayer and example with Jesus' teachings to love your enemies? And the reason and the way that we reconcile it is this, and I'll give you a contemporary example. Those who are wicked and bloodthirsty, as described and defined here in these verses, are those that have sought to live in complete opposition to who God is and against creation. They are those that not only oppose God, but are taking active steps to exercise evil within this created world and to take the lives of other people. They are doing everything they can to not only curse the name of God, but to wipe out anything that has the image of God on it. Now, Jesus says to love your enemies, to love those who are living as enemies to you, not those that are trying to kill you. All right so so we're talking about two different classifications of people. The contemporary example is this. You've seen some of you have seen on the news that there is a war between Hamas and Israel. Have you seen that? So Hamas uh, is, are these Islamic people from Palestine who have attacked and brought uh, chaos and murder against Israelites in Israel nation. And they are, listen, th- those that are within Hamas are wicked people. And according to the scripture, we would be right to pray for God to execute those people and to remove them from the face of the earth. That's strong language, Okay but let me tell you why that's justified and help you understand the difference between praying for the execution of the wicked all the while loving our enemies. Those who are fighting on behalf of Hamas and who are within the regime of Hamas, they are people who are actively, vocally, verbally, by self-confession, standing against God, claiming that God isn't real and that Jesus Christ is false, and what they are doing is they are shedding innocent blood. Verse by verse, point by point, they are the classification of what David is calling out right here. Now, do I think David's talking about Hamas? I don't. Do I think Hamas fits the bill? I do. They are shedding the blood of innocent. It used to be a, uh, it used to be a commonly accepted rule of war that you only attack uh, the enemies. Soldiers and enemies, you don't attack the civilians or the women and children, but Hamas has thrown that out, and they are completely attacking any and everyone without discrimination. They are going to the point of intentionally targeting civilians in Israel, thus showing the wickedness and the pure evilness of their hearts. And if that's not far enough, they're allowing the casualties of their own people, their own family members, their only children In some instances, they're using their wives, their women, and their children as shields for their own antics, which just shows how deeply dark and evil these people are. And it is within complete bounds of scriptural positions and prescription to pray that God would annihilate these people from the face of the earth. It's completely within biblical bounds. And I would tell you, not politicizing the pulpit, but just calling wickedness wicked, I would tell you that we would be we would be within God's will to ask God to take justice against people who are actively wicked, seeking to shed the blood of the innocent and seeking to oppose God, we should count them as our enemies too. We should So how do we reconcile that with loving our enemies? The Hamas are wicked people that God should annihilate from the face of the earth. But those that are within Palestine who are enemies of us, but not a part of Hamas, they're enemies that we should love. Last night I read the story. Uh, I read the story of a Palestinian woman, not an Israeli, not a Jew, but a Palestinian woman who was in the hospital and she was pregnant. And this major news outlet was trying to create a sympathetic story for her um, in an effort to, I think that in an effort to condemn what Israel was doing, counterattacking Hamas and they were talking about how she was pregnant and how because Israel has counterattacked Hamas's attacks now this woman's medical care was in jeopardy and she may not receive all of the she may not receive all of the attention that she needs and so they were trying to create the scenario where they were rallying support against Israel but, but in that situation we may pray for the destruction of Hamas but we should love that woman that's in the hospital like she may be an enemy of Israel by nature of being a Palestinian but that's the woman that Jesus calls us to love. We should want her to be well so that she has an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to recognize the falsehood of what Hamas is sharing. And so we can both have a hatred for the actively wicked and pray for their annihilation because they are they're the living manifestation of the dark spiritual world of Satan and we can love our enemies that we hope to come to repentance. We should do both. But now we reach another point in the scripture with a dramatic and rapid shift. In verse 23 and 24, David, he's just, he's just prayed this really hard, deep prayer and made these really strong declarations that I pray you understand a little bit better now. And then he makes this rapid shift again to now he welcomes an examination by the Lord. So he goes from praying for the, uh, the execution of the wicked to asking God to examine him. Specifically in verses 23 and 24, David writes these words. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So in other words, David says, all right, now I've prayed these things. Now, God, I need you to come and check my heart. I need you to check my person. Specifically, he calls for the Lord to investigate three parts of his being. If you're taking notes, here are the three parts. Number one, he asked the Lord to search his heart. In verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. This is the same language that's used in verse 1 of the same chapter. He says, search, investigate, Lord, examine my heart, Uh, check my motives. What is it that drives me, Lord? Check and see if there's anything in me that, that is driving me that's not of you. He asked the Lord to try his thoughts. So number one, search my heart. Number two, try my thoughts. In the second part of verse 23, try me, test me, Lord. Put me on trial and know my thoughts. Specifically what he's calling the Lord to test here and inviting the Lord to test here are the thoughts that cause anxiety in his life. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts that seem to disrupt the peace that's in your heart? Specifically, that's what he means when he says thoughts, disconcerting or disquieting thoughts. There are some thoughts I have that are just, they're everyday thoughts. And then there are other thoughts that seem to be, uh, they seem to create anxiety in me. Am I the only one that gets anxiety? There are some thoughts that cause anxiety or lead me to worry. That's what David's talking about. And why would David be talking about those? Let me just give you, just let me give you a little, a little sermonette about this. David says, Lord, test and try my thoughts, my anxieties, so that David will understand what it is that he's thinking about in his life that's become idolatrous. So here's the problem with our anxieties. Our anxieties are things we think about that cause us to think over and over and over and over and over and over again. And sometimes the worry that we've applied to those thoughts, it's protective. We think about those things and because we're alert to them, we are protected from following through with a really bad idea or a really bad plan or a really bad situation. But there are other things that we think about in such a habitual fashion that suddenly they seem to take ownership over our life and rather than having a fear and trust in the Lord, we fear those things we worry about, and we just try to figure out how to work through them. And so David's saying, Lord, would you show me anything in my life that I'm I'm allowing to rule over me? Would you test me? Lord, would you put me on trial? And would you say, this is what I see that is controlling you? Just a a personal example. Over the past week, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, I've just started to have anxiety about preaching. Like, not necessarily worried about preaching. I mean, this is, um, as as Hank, our executive pastor, said so eloquently to me this morning, it's your job to talk to people. He's right, like that part I get. But like I started to have anxiety that maybe my, my, my preaching wasn't good enough That's comparison is an awful thing. Like my preaching wasn't good enough or maybe I wasn't communicating to people and connecting them. And the Lord just started to reveal to me, studying this, Scott, are you worried about about your preaching because you're worried about what people will think about you or you're worried about what people will think about me? You see, our anxieties tend to be about what it is that's central to us and what's propping us up. But I don't preach so that you guys think more of me. My point and my calling is to preach so that you think more of him. When I get myself out of the center of the question, my anxiety is a relief because I understand I'm just a messenger with a message. I'm not a messenger trying to promote myself. And the Lord said, take yourself out of it. and Remember, your calling and your task is to point people to me to reveal the truth of my word so that they would think more of me and not about you. And is it true about you? What are the things that you're worrying about that are beginning to control you, that are taking the focus off of God as the central person in your life and putting them on you? David says, test me, show me if there be anything like that in my life. And then he goes finally into this third point of request. He says, and then see, Lord, look at and know if there's any grievous way in me. So my heart, my motivations, my thoughts and concerns and anxieties, but now, Lord, my manner of life, my practice and my customs, would you see if there's anything in my life, God, that is out of line with you? And the reason that he asked for this is because David wants to be led to the place of everlasting. He wants to be led to the place and put in a position where he has everlasting life. There's two options here. You can have the way of the world and the way of the wicked, which is condemnation and destruction. Or you can have the way of Christ, which is the way of life, eternal life. There are only two options here. Sometimes people think they can live in the middle of the road until they're ready. You are either living with the wicked and on your way to destruction or you are living with Christ and you're on your way to life. Those are the only two options. And David says, I recognize that these are the only two options. So I'm asking, Lord, lead me this way. I don't like what's being offered over here. Lead me in this direction. And so it should be true with us. Now it leads us to this place, and here's this final question that we're going to ask. We've already dealt with the reconciliation that's necessary as we grapple with the difference between praying for the wicked and loving our enemy, but now we ask this question, because we know God is sovereign, but we know God is all-powerful, if He is sovereign and if He is all-powerful, why doesn't He just go ahead and deal with the evilness that's in this world? Like, what? It's a it's a valid question. If God is sovereign, if God is all powerful, if He can accomplish anything that He wants to accomplish, why doesn't He just take care of Hamas? I mean, yesterday our, our news was flooded with Hamas's attack on that music festival and all those innocent people, the civilians being run down. If God is so powerful, if He's sovereign, if He has everything under His control, why doesn't He even take care of some of the evils that are right here in our world? Like, why doesn't God just take care of the the robbery and the crime that happens right here, the the shootings that, that take place in our county, in our city, in our region? Why doesn't God step in if He's sovereign, if He's holy, if he's capable, and deal with the bad that's happening here, the broken homes, the wayward children, the adulterous people. There's a number of ways that we could answer that. There there are. there, There are many answers to this question. But I think that this stanza that we studied today And the sudden shift David makes from praying for the annihilation of the wicked to then asking God to examine his own heart, I think that it suggests to us one primary reason why God has not acted yet. What if the reason that God has waited to annihilate evil and to remove bad from this earth, what if the reason that he's waited to take action is because of you? What if he's chosen not to act yet because he's waiting for you to turn back to him? The scripture tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What if the reason that God has waited to exact justice on the face of this earth is because he wants you to have the opportunity to turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ for salvation? What if it's because he doesn't want eternity to exist without you in it? And David says, God, I'm praying that you bring an annihilation, an execution to the wicked. And God, would you search me to make sure that I'm not one of them? And I want to invite you to make the same decision. I want to invite you to reach the same conclusion. That Lord, I want to pray against the wickedness that's happening in this world, even in our homes. But God, I wanna make sure that I'm not praying that with an audacity or an arrogance or a pride that thinks I'm exempt from also being one of those people. So I'm gonna ask you, Lord, to examine my heart, to know my ways, and Lord, to try my thoughts. And if there's anything in my life, God, that would lead me to not be in line with you, if there's anything in my life, God, that would suggest that I'm one of the wicked, God, would you show it to me so that I can repent of my sins and walk with you? And I want to invite you to reach that conclusion. And if you think that you are above the potential to be an evil person that needs the justice of God put on your life, then you're exactly the one who needs to turn to Jesus today. We are all those who need to turn to Jesus today. And so here's what you need to do. And please hear what I'm about to tell you as more than just a suggestion. I'm telling you what you need to do today because your eternity is on the line. And make no mistake about it, God may not have exacted justice and wiped out evil yesterday, but there's nothing to say he won't do it today. And he may have been waiting for you up to this point, but don't think that that invitation to respond will last forever. The day of judgment will come. And what you need to do today, if you have never received forgiveness of your sins by placing your faith in Jesus Christ today, you need to say, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus Christ was the only son of God and that he died on the cross so that I could be saved. And so today, I receive by faith the forgiveness of my sins by placing my trust in Jesus. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. I don't care if you sit in the front, in the back, or in the balcony. If you have never made that decision, today is the day you need to decide to trust Jesus as your Savior. Now's the time. If you would like to be saved, and you never have made that decision, now you can. You simply believe in your heart what God has done, and He will do the saving. I want to move us into a specific time of invitation. If you are on the worship team leading us in the song, I want to invite you to come forward. I want to invite everyone where you are just to stand. Go ahead and stand up where you are as we get into place. And I'm going to ask that in the next few moments that if you, if you don't have to move, if you don't have to leave the room, I'm going to ask that you stay put. Because there are people in this room doing business with the Lord. It's happening right now. There are folks that are doing business with the Lord, and there are folks the Lord's doing business with. And, and, and I would hate to know that I was moving around unnecessarily, and I created a distraction. So just hold on where you are. If you need to receive Jesus as your Savior, and you would like to know more about that, I'm going to invite you, when we start singing in a few moments, to make your way down an aisle and come Take me by the hand, take one of our ministers by the hand. Who who are the ministers helping us? Patrick, you're over here. Who's over here? Joe's over here. You see him? Hey, we're ready for you. We're ready for you. Matter of fact, we've invited some other folks, some church members who have volunteered to come and to be available. In the event there's more of you than there are us, we've got folks ready to, to pray with you, to hug you, to encourage you. I mean, right here's a couple. They're gonna help us if you come down and you want someone to pray with you, we're ready for you because we believe God's doing something. If you need to make a decision for Jesus, you don't need us to be saved, but you do need us to be discipled. We need to know what decision you've made so we can encourage you and pray for you and give you some instruction. Maybe you need to join the church. That's another decision. Some folks have said, we're just going to wait and see what Brother Scott does and how things go. It's going good. (laughs) And it would be going better if you'd come and join us. This is a great day to come and join the church. You can come forward and take me by the hand or take one of the ministers by the hand and say, hey, listen, we've been visiting for a while, but we want to make a commitment. We want to put our word down and say, this is going to be our church family. We're going to we're going to be here. We're going to serve here. We're going to grow here. We're going to invest here. And maybe you need to come forward for believer's baptism. You've made a profession of faith, but you've never been baptized by immersion following that decision of faith. And you want to say, hey, I'm coming forward for believer's baptism. We would love to celebrate that decision and give you some instructions. Whatever God is leading you to do, don't wait, but would you respond today in the front and the back in the balcony? We're ready for you. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. When we begin singing, if you need to make a decision, would you step out and would you come forward? Lord, we thank you for the morning, for the opportunity to be in your house, to sing praises to you, to fellowship with the believers, and Lord, now to hear your word and be called to a response. We pray, God, that you would lead us to respond in obedience. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.